Well, good morning, Community Church Mount Pleasant. Good morning, Community Church Alma. And to everybody watching online, we're thrilled to be together. And welcome to week number two of Ordinary Saints. Today, I'm going to try my very best to dive into chapter two and chapter three of the book of Ephesians, where we're studying. Written by a fella by the name of Paul. And Paul gets, he turns the corner into chapter two. And he's going to lay out right now for you this morning, really just what is the gospel all about? It's going to be his explanation of why you need to be saved, that you needed to be saved. And he's going to give you the big why behind all of that. And then he's going to tell you why God chooses to save you. Paul's going to take right now, I think, two sticks of dynamite, and he's going to set them under two lies. And I want you to listen to these lies right now and tell me if you've ever heard this before. Maybe you've thought of it before, or maybe even today as you are listening to me, you're like, no, that's what I believe. And if it is, Paul's going to take a stick of dynamite to that. And he's going to blow it up on you. So listen to these two lies. Number one, the main problem in the world is other people. Ever heard that? Ever thought that? Number two, deep down, we're not all that bad. Deep down, we just make a few little mistakes from time to time. We slip up every now and again. We have little moments of weakness or confusion, but we're not all that bad. And Paul says, lie, lie. He's going to blow it up and expose it. The idea that we're pretty good people and that What's really wrong is society. Ever heard that? There's a problem in society. There's a problem in culture today. It's just some kind of ethereal thing that kind of floats out there somewhere. That's what's wrong. Check this out. One little tiny statement as he gets into chapter 2. He's not pulling any punches. In fact, he's going to throw the hammer down on this right now. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says this. As for you... You are dead in your transgressions and sins. There it is. This is Paul bringing the hammer down. And guess who is on the, end, the receiving end of the hammer? That's you and me. As for you, now we would like to say, wait a second, don't point the finger at me. In fact, we all love to point the finger at other people. But Paul's blaming you. He's blaming me. We want to blame society. We want to blame culture. And he's like, no, it's you. And let me tell you about you. You are dead. Ah, Paul, lighten up a little bit, would you? You're dead. You're dead in your sins and your mistakes. You're dead in your transgressions. You're dead in your blunders. It's not society. It's not culture. It's not your mommy or your daddy. It's not Hollywood. It's not academia. It's not today's standards. It's none of those things. It's you. And you're dead in it in your blunders and all your mistakes. I've got one category for people, and you're in it, and the category is called sinners. Congratulations, you made it. And his chosen adjective to help us understand how bad things really are is the word dead. You're dead in your sins, dead in your transgressions. Thank you so much, Paul, for the hammer. Delightful stuff. Think about it. Dead is not something you do. Dead is something you are. Dead is not an action. It's a condition. We'd like to think, no, 
I do bad things. I did a bad thing. I was angry. I did that. I was greedy. I did that. But I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. I just did a bad thing. I'm, 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 I'm good, though. You see the difference? That's what we'd like to do. And Paul is like, no, let me push you on this. It's more than something you did. It's the way you are. I really want you to get this. A true reflection of your condition and how bad th things really, really are. And he just says it. You're completely dead in your sin. Especially in the light of how we try to fix it. You make a mess, right? What do we do? We, we clean up the mess, right? You make a mistake, what do we do? Well, I better fix the mistake. And Paul is basically saying to you, it's really hard to fix dead. Good luck with that. You can't fix it. Listen to this author. It's not that we do bad things, and that makes us bad. It's that we do bad things because we're bad. It's not that we steal and cheat, and therefore that makes us now greedy. No, we steal and cheat because we are greedy, by nature greedy. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's our nature. We think in our minds, particularly big picture, like heaven and hell, and we think, where I get to spend eternity, right, upstairs or downstairs, fingers crossed, is directly related to what I do. So if I do enough good stuff, then I'll probably get to go upstairs. I'll make it to heaven. But if somehow in my life I cross some very ill-defined line between living a good life and living a bad life, then maybe I'll be downstairs. Maybe things won't go well for me. I'll go to hell. In fact, I would venture to say that if you asked your average person that's a part of your life, your neighbor or your friend or just some guy walking down the street, and you were to ask them, what do you have to do to get to heaven? They're going to give you some version of what I just said in the last 30 seconds. They're going to give you some version of try your best, live a good life, do more good stuff than bad stuff. Here's the rude discovery that Paul wants for you in chapter 2 and 3. It's a rude discovery. You're not going to like it, but it's a necessary one. What I am is terribly distasteful to God. I am deeply offensive to His holiness. What I am, not what I do necessarily, what I am causes Him severe anguish and pain. What I am actually generates His righteous, holy indignation. If it did not, he would cease to be holy, he would cease to be righteous, he would cease to be God. He is deeply offended by what, by what I am, but incredibly, in the light of all that, he's, he loves me to distraction, which doesn't really make much sense. So far, the first verse of chapter 2, it's not a very pretty picture, is it? There's not much in there that'll put a smile on your face. It's you. Stop blaming others. It's your sin. He's got fingers pointing everywhere. You're to blame. Your transgressions. Stop blaming society. Stop blaming your mommy and your daddy. It's not just that you sin, it's that you are a sinner. And that sin that you're so fluent in, you're dead in it and you can't fix it. 
Because I do what I do, here's what I earn. Here's what I deserve. I merit the righteous, holy indignation of God. His judgment. But incredibly, he reaches out to me and he says, it's not even that I like you. It's that I love you. Never confuse the two. I dislike what you are. Your very nature is an affront to my original design and holiness. It causes me severe pain, but I love you. Verse 4 gives us a little bit of a breath. I'm very glad for verse 4. Let me read it to you. But because of this great love for us, God. Because of his great love. It may be one of the greatest conjunctions in the whole Bible. Paul just laid down the hammer. This is the mess that you're in. Now let me turn the corner for you. There is good news for this bad news. But because of God, but because of God's love, but because of God's great love, we get these tragic, helpless few verses, but it's not hopeless. Why? But because of His great love, God has something to say here. Let me read the full verse. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, He has made us, and look at the word, it's the complete opposite. He has made us what, church? He's made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Let me take the one thing that you can do nothing about, dead, the one thing that nobody can really fix, and Christ says, I'm going to flip that on its head. Why would you do that for me, God? Why would you do that? Church, do not miss this. If I could say one thing to you this morning, Write this down, memorize it, take it seriously. I want you to listen to my words from the heart of God for you today. I want you to make the Lord and His great love for you to constitute your personal worth. Don't miss this, please. I want you to see it for what it is. Try your best to wrap your head and your arms around this. And I want you to allow this to constitute your personal worth. I want you to define yourself as somebody who is radically loved by God. God's love for you, His choice of you, that it constitutes your worth. I want you to accept that and allow that to become the single most important thing in your life. That's huge. I spoke with a student in this church a few weeks ago. It was such a classic conversation, but it was very emotional. This student was very honest, very sincere, and it was, I don't know where I fit in. And this student was in tears. I don't know where I fit in. My friends, look at the comparison. Do you, do you remember doing this when you were younger? My friends are good at math. I'm not good at math. My friends are good at sports. I'm not as good as they are. And that matters. When you're that age, that matters, doesn't it? That's huge for you. That's your world. I want, this is what the student told me, and tears. I want to be appreciated. It's such a classic conversation. I want to belong. And then they said, I want to be good at something. Last thing they said, I don't know who I am. And what they were trying to do was take the, I don't know who I am, and if they could be good at math, 
and good at sports, or whatever the thing is, or fit into a group, then they would say, that would now constitute who I am. And that's not good territory to go down at all. I was blown away talking to this person because they were, they were like, you know, I mean, hardly able to get the words out. They were so emotional. And I thought, what a classic middle school, high school age conversation to have. And then I thought about it. We don't want to admit this. I don't think that's a middle school, high school exclusive problem at all. I think we all think that stuff. Today, I don't care how old you are. I think we all go down that road. The basis of your personal worth is not your possessions or your talents or the esteem of other people. It's not even your reputation. It's not kudos from everyone else telling you how important you are. I stand anchored in God, whom I stand in front of, as it were, naked, who tells me, no, you are my son, you are my beloved. That's where it's at. You see, ordinary you, ordinary saint, is extraordinary in the eyes of God because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And still, you know what we do? We don't get this. And still we come to Abba Father trying to impress Him and we present to Him our trinkets and our badges and our gold stickers. And in doing so, what we do with God's great love, this conjunction in Ephesians chapter 2, is we regulate God off to the side and we return to spiritual deadness. That he's like, no, 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 I've made you alive in Christ. We're like, no, 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 let me impress you. I'll return to spiritual deadness. And we become an imposter. When we try to draw our identity from anything else, from achievements or strokes from other people, it's not the real you. It's not the ordinary saint that you are. The true self claims identity in the great love that we find in verse 4. Paul states it really, really clearly. In fact, he's going to say the same thing twice in the matter of three verses. Verse 5, he says this, it's by grace you've been saved. I, I don't need your trinkets, I don't need your gold stars, I don't need your badges. It's by grace that you've been saved. In verse 8, three, three verses later, he just, he's like, I've got to say it again. He says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. Are you getting the message? It's the gift of God. It's not by works. It's not by all the stuff that you're trying to do. You see, Scripture is insisting that salvation is instituted by God's initiative. That He is this tremendous lover who has given chase to you today. But our version of spirituality starts with self. And we sideline God. We talk about well, I'll try to change, and I'll try to be nicer, and I'll try to do less bad things, and I'll try to sin less, and I'll try to do nicer things and, uh, and more good things. As if you could do those things with the practice required for good handwriting or a good golf swing. That's what we're trying to do to God. I'll keep trying. We give lip service to this grace that He says, I want to hand it to you. We say, yeah, thanks, got it, that's great. But then we're like, no, I've got to practice some kind of personal discipline and some kind of self-denial life that's going to achieve my good standing with God. And everything in that has an emphasis on what I can do instead of what God has done. Hey God, why don't you sit on the bench for a while? Why don't you just be a spectator? I don't need you to be active in my life. Why don't you watch? Watch what I do. You're going to like it. And that is a crippling misunderstanding of what Paul is talking about. That self-made Christian who can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, 
will eventually reach the point of wipeout, exhaustion. You will be confronted by two painful truths if that is the life you live. Inadequate, insufficient. Man, but I tried. I really worked hard. All that spiritual sweat, it hasn't added an inch to your spiritual stature. And then you get faced with gloom and pessimism and despair. Or sometimes we end up wagging our finger at God and blaming Him. Didn't you see what I did? How come you're not impressed with all my stuff? Where were you? And i got to tell you, church, that's a joyless life, isn't it? I don't want to do that. Trying to be a good little boy or a good little girl. Somehow, we've missed the story of the prodigal son. I am his beloved. I'm bragging right now, guys. I don't care. Chest puffed out, head up high. You want to know anything about me? He loves me. Like, picture in the wallet, angels are rolling their eyes. Yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> that's me. I don't know about you, but that's me. Classic question every male asks every male. Hello, how, what, what, who are you? What's your name? What do you do? I'm his beloved. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I do. Because we like to fill in the blank with, you know, some kind of occupancy. No, no, no. I'm his beloved. Any identity outside of that truth is counterfeit. It's not you. It's not your works. And I hope you hear these words that I'm speaking to you. I hope you hear them with a sense of tenderness, but I hope you hear them firmly because I want love to take a hold of you. You are his beloved. Helpless, not hopeless. Dead in transgressions, made alive in Christ Jesus. Amen? Listen, another author, he says, living in awareness of the belovedness is the axis with which the Christian life revolves. Being the beloved is our identity. It is the core of our existence. It's not merely a lofty thought or an inspiring idea or one name among any. It is the name. He's talking about the word beloved. It is the name by which God knows us and the way which he relates to us. Satan knows your name. Calls you by your sin. God knows your sin. He calls you by his name. Let me tell you a story, a fellow by the name of Michael. He went away to be with the Lord by himself. This is what he said he heard from God. In the stillness, he whispered, shouted, Michael, I'm here. I've been calling you. You haven't been listening. Can you hear me, Michael? I love you. I've always loved you. I've been waiting for you to hear me say, I love you. But you've been so busy trying to prove to yourself that you're loved that you haven't heard me. Look at Michael's response. Look at how he comes to terms with being dead in his sin. The very thing that Paul's bringing up here. He said, I heard him. It's, this guy's quite poetic. He says, I heard him, and my slumbered soul was filled with the joy of the prodigal son. My soul was awakened by a loving father who had been looking and waiting for me. That's what the father did for the, for the prodigal son. Finally, I accepted my brokenness. I'd never come to terms with that. Let me explain. I knew I was broken. I knew I was a sinner. 
I knew I continually disappointed God. I probably don't have to you know, twist our arms on that one for anyone here. He says, but I could never accept that part of me. It was the part of me that embarrassed me. I continually felt the need to apologize and to run away from my weakness, to deny who I was and concentrate on what I should be. I was broken, yes, but I was continually trying to not be broken again or at least get to a place where I could be seldom broken. You see, I had totally misunderstood the Christian faith. I came to see that it was in my brokenness and in my powerlessness and in my weakness that this Savior, Jesus Christ, was being made strong. What does all this mean? This is what he writes. I don't know. And to be quite blunt, maybe it's the wrong question. I can only tell you when I heard from my father, there was this anticipation. There was this electricity about God's presence in my life that I'd never experienced before. I can only tell you that for the first time in my life, I can hear Jesus whisper to me every day, Michael, I love you. You're my beloved. And for some strange reason, it's enough for me. That's enough. That's all I need. 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers, think about what we were when we were called. I bumped into this word, this word last Wednesday or two Wednesdays ago at the prayer meeting. I thought I knew every Irish-American little colloquialism difference from the words. And after all of these years, what do you hear me say when I say this scripture? Brothers, think about what you were when you were called. And so I asked my wife, because she's laughing at me, and others were laughing at me, think about what you wear. And so they were thinking, clothes. And they're, they're, I'm like, well, how does an American say that word? And they said, were. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you right now, you're all wrong, okay? Because <laughs> that's just weird coming out of my mouth. Brothers, think about your were when you were called. But when I say were, you're all going to think clothing. Okay, anyway, moving on into what we're supposed to talk about. Think about what you came from. Think about <laughs> what you were rescued from. Think of the way you used to be. Think of the way you used to think and act and treat people. Give it a moment. That's what that scripture says. Think about it. Before you were with God. Think about your life running away from God, deliberately, selfishly, foolishly, doing your own thing. It's what we all have in common. It's what makes us family and then our Savior. Verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. This is not very complimentary. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that... For what? So that what, what is it, God? He says, well, I want you to think about the mess that you wear. Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming society. Stop blaming your mommy and your daddy and culture and, and the different bar and the way things used to be and academia and Hollywood and the last movie that came out. Stop blaming all those things. You're dead in your transgressions. Now think about the mess that was all that. And then now, skip past all of that. For what purpose? And he says it. Verse 29, so that nobody may boast before him. What are you getting at? so that nobody may boast before him. That's Corinthians. He says the exact same thing in Ephesians. Verse 8, it is the gift of God, not by works, like word for word, so that no one can boast. Here's what he wants you to get. Everything that God has done has been for his glory. 
for his purposes, what he could do, whether it was with something or whether it was with nothing, whether you consider yourself good, bad, or indifferent, whether you think that you're wise or noble or lowly or weak, it doesn't actually matter. We, he has done something in our lives and it is for his glory and his honor and his delight and his pleasure and nobody else gets to take the credit for that. It is for his glory alone. But we think, ah, surely it's something I did. We go back to our trinkets and our gold stars and our badges and our efforts to impress God and to be good little boys and good little girls. We think we have something to offer. We think we're doing better than we used to. We think we're trying harder. No. It was because of Jesus Christ. We think it's our smarts, our resources, our rule keeping. No, you're lowly and you're weak. That's what 1 Corinthians says. It's because of him. From eternity past, he's choosing you and it's because of him. From the foundations of time, through his blood, by his forgiveness, there's no other reason but him. For his honor, his glory, his love, his choice, his doing. Don't even try to boast about it. What do you do with this truth? What could God possibly be speaking to you? Paul has dispelled these lies that you're pretty good and that it's everybody else's fault. He threw the hammer down on that. He turns the corner with this, but because of God's great love, we get to chapter 3. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, this is what I want for you that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Isn't this wonderful, church? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. And the church says today I want you arrested by love. Today I want that electricity in your relationship with God. The worst thing we could do is yawn at this or think that it's some kind of cliche, Jesus loves you. Let me close with this story. Christian professor back in the 1960s. Anyone around in the 1960s? Predates me. He says, uh, he is starting off his, uh, his job. He says, I'm teaching at the University of Ohio. There was a student there who, by society standards, would have been considered, quite simply, ugly. He was very short. He was extremely obese. He had a terrible case of acne. He had a bad lisp. And his hair grew in four different directions. And he wore the uniform of the 1960s. A dirty t-shirt, jeans, and no shoes. In all my days, I have never met anyone with such low self-esteem. He told me that when he looked in the mirror in the morning, he spat at his reflection. And of course, no girl on campus would date him. No fraternity wanted him as a pledge. Well, he walked into my office one day, his lisp very evident. He said to me, Professor, you're new on campus. My name is Larry Mullaney. I'm an agnostic. Wow, congratulations, I said. If you ever become an atheist, I'll take you out to dinner and we'll celebrate your conversion. Later on in the semester, Larry went home for his Christmas break. He found himself with his parents in Providence, Rhode Island. 
Larry's father is a typical lace curtain Irishman. Now there are lace curtain Irishmen and there are shanty Irish. The lace curtain Irishman, even on the hottest day in summer, will not come into the dining room table without wearing a suit, usually a dark pinstripe, starched white collar, a tie swollen at the top. He will never allow his sideburns to grow to the top of his ear and he always speaks in a low, subdued voice. Larry tells his father at dinner he's got to get back to school the next day. What time, son? Six o'clock. Well, I'll ride the bus with you. The next morning, the father and son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus. And as Larry has to catch a second one to ride to the airport, directly across the street are six factory working men, standing under an awning. They begin to make loud, degrading marks like, oink, oink, look at the fat pig. I tell you, if he was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door so fast he wouldn't know if he's on foot or horseback. Hey, pig, give us your best oink. Larry Mullaney told me in that moment that for the first time in his life, his father reached out and embraced him kissed him on the lips and said to him, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, it wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift that he gave us in you as our son. I'm so proud that you are my son. It would be hard to describe the transformation that took place in Larry Mullaney's life, but I will try. He came back to school he remained a hippie, but he cleaned up as best he could. Miracle of miracles, Larry began dating a girl. And to top it off, he became the president of one of the fraternities, I'm not lying. He graduated with a 4.2 average. And Larry came into my office one day and he said, tell me about this man, Jesus. He lived his life as a missionary in South America, a man sold out for Jesus Christ. And do you know why? It wasn't any of my wisdom or any of the conversations that we shared over the years in my office. No, it was a day long ago during a Christmas vacation, standing at a bus stop when his lace curtain Irish father healed him. Yes, his father healed him. His father was a type of Christ. He got out of the foxhole and he expressed his great love to a broken boy in the face of cursing and taunts. He looked deeply into the eyes of his son and he transformed him. Will you hear the voice of the Father today?